extended as it were. Today, we are privileged to have you sharing with us here at the Abundant Life Seventh-day Adventist Church as you join us in our worship service. Our speaker today is Dr. Calvin B. Rock. He is the senior pastor here at the Abundant Life Seventh-day Adventist Church, and he will be bringing the message to us today. Before he comes, we will hear from our children's choir, then you will hear none other than our senior pastor, Dr. Calvin B. Rock. Now, if you desire to contact us, you may reach us at 702-647-2627, or you may write to us at the Abundant Life Seventh-day Adventist Church, 1720 North J Street, 89106 Las Vegas, Nevada. Before, at this time, we will have our children's choirs. Then you'll hear from our senior pastor, Dr. Calvin B. Rock. Hear ye him. Abundant Life recognizes that its children, its youth, constitute the most important responsibility we have. And we thank God for the leaders, our youth leaders, Pastor Lewars and all the others, for our musicians, for our school teachers, our principal, 
and for you parents who recognize that this is our most precious treasure. Shall we pray? Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the reminder so sweetly given that where Jesus is, there is peace. That where Jesus is, there is love, there is safety. And here in this your house where Jesus is today, we pray that your Holy Spirit will speak to us clearly and that we might leave this house more in tune with heaven and more grateful and thankful than ever. In Jesus' name, amen. I challenged the church last week to see if you could think with me about the subject of the most thankful person in the Bible. And a couple of you got it right. And even if you didn't get it right, I'm glad you did some thinking. And of course, there are numerous examples in the Bible of individuals, men and women, who were blessed with experiences that caused them great gratitude, thanksgiving, which is what the season is all about. There is the thief on the cross, the Ethiopian eunuch who met Philip, read my favorite chapter, Isaiah 53, and I hope some of you are still reading that daily and remembering to fast every Friday as I challenged us to do to the end of the year, and we spoke on it last Sabbath. Then there is Saul, whose name was changed to Paul and who was knocked off his horse on the Damascus Road. And there are others who are extremely, eternally grateful for their salvation. But today, I want to talk with you, in the first instance at least, not so much about thanksgiving for spiritual conversion. That's the ultimate, of course. But I want to deal on the everyday practical level of thanksgiving for deliverances God has given to certain people in the Bible, and one person in particular, and to the interventions that God provides for his people. And there are a lot of Old Testament characters who fit into this category. There is Rahab the harlot, remember her? She had to be thankful to be delivered when the spies came back and having helped them, they now rescued her and saved her life. She had to be helpful, but thankful. But I'm not talking about Rahab today. And there was Jonah. He had to be thankful. Down in the belly of the fish. We call it a whale, the Bible says a great fish. Down there with all those seaweeds and dead fish, the little fish that had been swallowed by the big fish. Down there with all those gastric acids. Must have been terrible down there in the dark for three days. And I know that when he was belched up on the sand on the seashore, he was thankful. But I'm not talking about Jonah today. And there was Hannah who was childless and prayed and God gave her Samuel. And here, there was Hezekiah. Remember him? Hezekiah heard that he was terminal. He was told to get ready to die, but Hezekiah got to praying so hard and talking to God so, so, so ardently that God changed his mind and gave him 15 more years of life. Now I know that brother was thankful. And then there was Daniel, who slept all night in the lion's den. <laughs> and came out, came out whole and healthy and unscratched 
And he had to be thankful. And what about Nebuchadnezzar? Here's a brother who was high up and who was smitten and he had to eat grass and, and act and was like an animal for seven years and finally his sanity was restored. Do you think he was thankful? Of course, Hezekiah the king was thankful. And we could go on. Then the New Testament, there's the grateful leper and the man born blind and the man let down through the roof of Peter's wife's mother's place and the woman who touched his garment and the widow of Nain whose son was released from the casket on the way to the grave. Whoa, she must have been thankful. And there are many, many more. But the one that I think was more thankful than any man or woman in the Bible is the one that I want to talk about now, and I want you to read with me about him in the book of Genesis. And some of you have already figured it out, but just in case you haven't, look in Genesis chapter 22, beginning at verse 7. And Isaac spake unto Abraham his father and said, My father, and he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went both of them together, and they came to the place which God had told him of, and Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. Verse 11. And the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes, and behold, behind him a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him for a burnt offering in the stead of his son. I submit to you, church, that Abraham has to be the most thankful man in all the Bible. I don't know of any experience that anybody had that can equal Abraham's in terms of deliverance and what must have been the height and the ultimate of gratitude and thanks for the way God worked things out. But in order to really appreciate Abraham and his thanksgiving, we need to start at the very beginning. So turn with me now, if you will, to Genesis chapter 11, and I want you to note how the story builds. Genesis chapter 11, and this chapter describes how right after the flood, God struck the Tower of Babel, and beginning at verse 10, Genesis chapter 11 records the posterity, the genealogy of Shem, one of Noah's sons. And it goes through verses 10 on down to verse 27, telling you that this one lived and this one begat and this one died and he begat and begat and this one died and begat. Right on down to verse 27, where it says in verse 27, now these are the generations of Terah, and Terah begat Abram, that's our man, Nahor and Haran, and Haran began Lot. So this is where we first see the name Abram. And then in verse 30, we read that, in fact, beginning at verse 29, and Abram and Nahor took wives, and the name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah. And the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, the father of Ishkah. But Sarah was barren. She had no child. And here is where the plot sets itself. Abram is now on the scene. 
He's married to Sari, and she, the Bible says, bear him no children, no sons, and no daughters. But then look at chapter 12, beginning at verse 1. Now the Lord said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house into a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing, and I will bless them. Verse 3, that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. So, God now says to Abram, I want you to get up and get out of here. I don't want you to stay here in this heathen land. I, I have my eyes on you, Abram. I see some things in you that I really like, and I've got something special for you to do, and I want you to leave here. And the Bible says in verse 4, So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken unto him, and Lot with him, and Abram was 75 years old when he departed. He was how old, everybody? 75 years old when he departed. Now, jump over to chapter 13, if you please, and notice how the story continues. In chapter 13, look at verse 14, where it says, And the Lord said unto Abraham, after Lot was separated from him, his nephew, Lift up thine eyes and look from the place where thou art northward and southward and eastward and westward for all the land which thou seest to thee will I give it and to thy seed forever and I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth so that if a man can number the dust of the earth then shall thy seed also be numbered. Well, God is taking all of this emphasis and interest and focus on Abraham in chapter 11, in chapter 12, in chapter 13. He repeats his promise to make him a great progenitor, a father of a people as numerous as the dust of the earth. Now chapter 14 doesn't say anything about all of that. Abraham is busy here. He's at war and the promise of a great seed and a great nation to come from him and God's blessings is not mentioned. These are not mentioned. But look at chapter 15 now. Keep working with me. Chapter 15 verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision saying, Fear not, Abraham, or Abram. I am thy shield, thy exceeding great reward. And Abraham said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me? In other words, Abraham is saying, Lord, why do you keep telling me this? You got me, Lord. You're telling me you're going to give me a great nation. You're telling me you're going to make me the father of all, all these people. You, you, you keep making this promise, but my wife is barren. She can't have any children. And verse 2, Abraham said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me? Why you keep doing this, Father? Seeing I go childless, and the steward, or the servant of my house, is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is mine heir. So Abraham is arguing with God. He says, all right, you keep promising me you're going to do this for me and you're going to give me children and my children are going to have children and my wife can't have babies. And I've been through this. You started with me when I was back there in my 70s and now I'm getting older and older and you know the older I get, the less chance is going to happen. So Lord, what about Eliezer, my servant? 15 verse 2. What about him? He's born in the house. He's, maybe that's what you're talking about. But look at verse 4. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. God said, look, Abraham, I'm telling you, 
I'm going to make you the father of a great people. And it won't be through this, this Eliezer, this servant born of somebody else. This is no, uh, no, no in vitro conception. I'm not, you know, it, it, it's you, Abraham. I want this to come from your loins. You're going to be the father. And Sarah, or Sari at this time, is going to be the mother. And then he tells him again, look at the stars, and if you can count them, verse 5, so you'll number. And look at verse, what verse 6 says. And he, Abram, believed in the Lord, and he counted it for righteousness. So God kept talking to Abram to finally he convinced him. Even though he's now an old man, he convinces him. And, and Abram says, all right, all right, it's not Eliezer, and, and you're going to do this. So he believed God. But then look at chapter 16, at chapter 16, where the action really begins to pick up. Now, Sari, Abraham or Abram's wife, bare him no children. Well, we got that down pat. We know that the poor lady couldn't have babies. And she had a handmaid, an Egyptian, whose name was Hagar. And Sari said unto Abram, Behold, now the Lord hath restrained me from bearing. I pray thee, go in unto my handmaid, it may be that I may obtain children by her. Now that's a little curious reasoning, isn't it? How could she get a baby by another woman, sired by her husband? And Abram hearkened to the voice of Sarah. Well, now that's the second time a man got in real trouble listening to his wife. The, the, the first time is over there in Genesis chapter 2 and 3. And you know about that one, don't you? All right. So, so it says, And Sari, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, after Abram had dwelt 10 years. Now remember, he's 75 when he got started. <laughs> and the years are piling up now. And, and gave her to her husband, Abram, to be his wife. He went into Hagar, she conceived. And when, verse 4, she saw that she had conceived, her mistress despised her, was despised in her eyes. Uh-oh. So Hagar says, so, 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 so Sari says, Abram, you go ahead. That's okay. I can't have any babies. You go ahead with my, with my servant girl here, and you have a baby by her. And the girl gets pregnant, and guess what? She says, oh, no. <laughs> I don't like this. Did this, did, uh, and, and, and she did. Somebody's got to go. Somebody's got to go. Look at verse, verse 5. And Sarah said, My wrong be upon me. I have given my maid into thy bosom. And when she saw that she had conceived, I despised her. I was despised in her eyes. You see, it wasn't only Sarah looking at Hagar. But now Hagar got an attitude. You know, she's looking at Sari. She's all, you know, growing. Things are happening inside. The way of women, the mothers are upon her. And she's carrying the patriarch's baby. And Sari is mad because she did it. And now she's happy and looking down at Sari saying, I got him and you don't. So something had to give. And to make the story brief, Sari said to Abraham, she's got to go. And Abraham didn't want to, but he kept listening. And finally he agreed and he put her out in verse 6. And she had to wander alone, but an angel visited her. And verse 9 told her to go on back home. And she went back to Sari and Abram and had the baby and his name was Ishmael and they then dwelt together. But chapter 17, the story continues. Verse 1, when Abraham was 90 years old, all right, so he's getting up there now, folk. Abraham was 90 years or 90 and 9, 99 years old. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, I am the almighty God, walk with me, and be thou what, everybody? Be thou perfect.
perfect, God is telling him. And then in verses 2 on through 5, he repeats the promise, I'm going to do all this through you, and I'm going, to be, I'm going to give you a baby through Sarah, your wife. And in verse 5, he changes his name. Neither shall thy name anymore be Abram, but thy name shall be Abraham. For a father of many nations have I made thee. And then in verses 6 through 9, he repeats the promise that he's going to give them. He's going to give him this son. And in verse 15, God said unto Abraham, now he's Abraham, as for Sari thy wife, thou shalt not call her name Sari, but Sarah shall be her name, or her shall her name be. For I will bless her and give her a son also of her. Yea, I will bless her and she shall be a mother of nations. Look at verse 17. Then Abraham fell on his face and what? Fell on his face and laughed. He said, look, I'm 100 years old and Sarah is 90 years old and she's going to bear a child? And verse 18, Abram said unto God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. In other words, he says, look, I, I thought it could be Eliezer, my servant. Maybe he was my adopted son. He could bear my heritage on down the line. Now I had this baby with Hagar, who was Ishmael, and surely you, you, you keep talking about Sarah and me, but that's, that's not going to happen. So why not let Ishmael be the heir? And Abraham was a rich and mighty man. But then God looked on while in verse 17, Abraham laughed and said in his heart, it cannot be, why not Ishmael? But God responded in verse 19, God said, Sarah, thy wife, God made it plain, Sarah, thy wife shall bear thee a son indeed. And then he said, you shall call his name, what? Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his seed forever. And so, verse 21, he winds it up by saying, but my covenant I will establish with Isaac, this baby that Sarah is going to have at this old age of 90, I will establish my covenant with Isaac and she shall bear unto thee at this time next year, verse 22, and he left off talking with him. So God said, look, I'm going to wrap this up. Sarah is going to have a baby. His name is going to be Isaac. And he's going to be born the same time next year. And then in chapter 18, the heat is ratcheted up. For there in chapter 18, the plot thickens. In verses 1 to 3, there are three angels that come to visit Abraham and Sarah. And you read it when you go back home. Then in verse 10, the angels speak to him and her. And they repeat this same thing. Keep on saying it over and over again. Abraham, Sarah, you're going to have a baby. God's going to do it. And in verse 11, now Abraham, chapter 18, now Abraham and Sarah were old and well stricken with age, and it ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. Therefore, Sarah laughed within herself, saying, after I am waxed old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord, being old also? And the Lord said unto Abraham, wherefore did Sarah laugh? saying, shall I of surety bear a child which am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Got to preach a sermon on that one day. Is anything too hard for the Lord? And he goes on to remind 
to remind Abraham of his promise. Then in chapters 19 and 20, and we're coming up on the big event now, in chapters 19 and 20, the promises are not repeated. Abraham is busy in chapter 19 with Sodom and Gomorrah praying for their deliverance. He's busy in chapter 20 fighting with Abimelech who had taken some of the land. And it's chapter 21 where we pick up the story next and that is in verses 1 to 3 of Genesis chapter 21. And the Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did unto Sarah as he had spoken. And Sarah conceived and bare Abraham a son in his old age at the set time of which God had spoken of him. And Abraham called the name of his son that was born unto him whom Sarah bare to him Isaac. Just as God had commanded. And after Isaac was born, things got tight in the house. Because you see, when Hagar saw Isaac growing up, she realized that Ishmael, who was born 13 years older, would no longer be seen as the rightful heir to all of Abraham's property. And verse 9 says, Sarah saw, this is Genesis 21, 9, Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, which she had borne unto Abraham, mocking. So Ishmael started laughing at, Ish, at, at Isaac. Man, your mama was born when you were 90 years old. Look at you. Your parents, now nah, he, he, she's pretty old uh, anyway, but here he is making fun and, and casting a difference. And wherefore she said unto Abraham, this is Sarah now, cast out this bondwoman and her son. This is the second time Sarah is getting rid of them. For the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son. I don't want this shared. I don't want any interference. Get rid of this woman and get rid of this Ishmael. And the thing was very grievous in Abraham's sight. But once again, he did what Sarah said. And he sent Hagar out and she never came back. But it is, my friends, now back to chapter 22 where we started. And with that background, I want you to recount the steps that Abraham had to make. Verse 1 of chapter 22 says, And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham and said unto him, Abraham. And he said, Behold, here I am. And he said, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest. Now God is rubbing it in. He says, Abraham, I want you to take thy son. Now, 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 now that's heavy enough. Thy son, not somebody else's son, not some ram or lamb or goat, but take your son and then to rub it in, he says, thine only son. And then to make it real hard to put salt in the wound, as it were, he said, thine only son whom thou lovest and get thee into the land of Moriah, the mountain, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee. And you can imagine how Abraham, after all this, how Abraham must have felt. After all the trouble he'd been through, after all the torturous wait all those years till he was a hundred, after being told that it was not Eliezer, it would not be Ishmael, it would be Sarah, after all the miracle that had been announced to the heathen and his family that a 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman had given birth to a healthy, normal boy. After attracting the attention of his family and friends and being a byword in the land, after teaching his family that the Ten Commandments include one that says thou shalt not kill. After bonding so sweetly with his son all those 19 or 20 years. After waving off Eliezer and shooing off Ishmael. God says that one that's left, thy son, thine only son that thou lovest. I want you to take him. I want you to go up into the Mount Moriah mountain ranges. And I'll show you the peak 
week where I want you to sacrifice him. I want you to make him a human sacrifice before me. It was absolutely awful. How could Abraham do this? How could he tell Sarah? What would his servants think? What would the people think? They would think he was mad. He was crazy. He couldn't do it. What would Isaac say? How would Isaac react? How could he stand to plunge the knife, the rugged knife, to plunge the rugged knife into the beating heart of his own son? He was stunned. He was numb. He was dumbfounded, confused. To lose your child, any child, in an accident or disease would have been overwhelming. And I'm told there's no loss like the loss of a child. You can lose a parent, a sister, a brother, but there's no loss like the loss of a child. And I've experienced the others, the sister thing, and I've experienced the father and the mother thing, but I don't want to experience the child thing. When my mother was on her last year, she used to talk about dying, and I would say, well, don't say that. I may die before you. And one of the things she would always say is, God forbid. God forbid. No parent can lose a child without being torn and, and, and without suffering the worst of sorrow. And, they, and here we see Abraham ordered by God to proceed to do this dastardly thing. And our prophet Ellen White says in 1st SDA Bible Commentary 1094, it was the most severe test that could come to a human being. To lose your child by accident or disease is bad enough, but you to take him out. Impossible. According to Patriots and Prophets, page 147, same writer, Abraham was now 120 years as they advanced up the mountain. By faith, he had done some great things for God. By faith, he had left home in the area of the Chaldees. By faith, he had wandered, not knowing where God was leading him. By faith, he had rescued Lot when Captain Cherilioma had taken him captive. By faith, he had given Melchizedek tithe, Hebrews 7. By faith, he had walked before God, but his faith had not been perfect. He had distrusted God with Abimelech, declaring her to be his sister. And he had distrusted God by marrying Hagar and having Ishmael. And he had lied with Abimelech, saying that Sarah was his sister and not his wife. And he had laughed when God kept telling him he and Sarah would have a child. He had not been perfect in his faith, and God wanted him to be the premier. God wanted him to be the standard of faith. God wanted him to rise above Peter and Paul and Moses and David and everybody else as the father of the faithful, and the only way he could qualify was to have a perfect faith and to pass this test. And so... It was at night, according to our prophet, that God gave him the vision. And when God told him to go out and kill his son, he walked out and looked at the stars, and he shook his head, and he wept. And he went back into the room, and he looked at his boy who was sleeping, the, the sound and, and, and thoroughly relaxed sleep of a vigorous young man who played all day and worked all day. And he looked at him sleeping, and turned away tearfully and he went into Sarah's room and looked at her and wondered if he should wake her up, wake her up and tell her what was going to happen so she could have a final goodbye with her son. But he knew that wouldn't work. So he waited till the morning and he saddled his donkeys and took two of his servants. And chapter 22, verse 4 says, he began the three-day journey into the range of Mount Moriah toward where God would have him slay his son. And on the first day, he and Isaac walked along and he didn't have much to say. The second day they walked along and still not much was being said. And Isaac must have noticed the somber attitude of his dad. And both nights he spent all night in prayer, hoping that God would reverse the order, hoping that something would change. 
But on the third day, as he walked up the mountain range, he saw a peak and a cloud. All the other ranges were clear, but there was a cloud over one range, one spot in the mountain range. And he knew now that there was no turning back, that God really meant for him to do this. And so, as they went up on the last day, he and his boy as they approached this peak where the cloud rested, he sent his two servants away because he didn't want anybody to witness what he was about to do. Only God could see this. And as they continued up toward the place of execution, Isaac looked at him. He, first of all, he put the wood on Isaac's back and he took the fire and the knife and the old man crept along while the young man walked beside him and the young man said, Father, Father, I see the wood, I see the knife, I see the fire, but where is the sacrifice? And Abraham could not bear himself to answer, so he looked at his boy and said, Son, God himself will provide the sacrifice. And when he got up to the very top, the record is that he stopped and he talked to his boy and he told him what was going to happen. But somewhere along the line that third day, it occurred to him that if God could give him and Sarah a child when she was 90 and he was 100, he reasoned that even if he killed him, God could raise him up from the dead. And he said, Isaac, Isaac, I have to do this. God said, do it, but don't worry. He's going to raise you up. You've got to die now. I've got to take you out. But God's going to raise you from the dead. And Isaac shared the faith of his father. And somehow he was strengthened by God to believe what his father told him. So he willingly submitted while Abraham took the cords and wrapped up his wrist. And he even helped his father's trembling hands and steadied his hands and helped his father tie his feet and his wrists. And this young fellow in the prime of young adulthood who could have easily run away. The old man couldn't have caught him under any circumstances, but tired after three days climbing the mount, it was hopeless. But he laid down upon the altar, and his father reached over to him, and they, they had their final goodbyes. Father and son smiled, and tears were falling, and the old man reached over on the altar and put his head and his face upon that of his son and kissed him goodbye and picked up the knife and as God had instructed him, he was plunging the knife toward the bosom of his boy when suddenly an unseen hand grabbed his wrist and halted the blow and God cried out, Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham jolted, stopped and looked and cried, here am I. And God said, touch not the son. I just wanted to know if you were willing to do everything I told you to do. I just wanted to know that you were willing to give me the best that you had. I just wanted to know that you had nothing too precious to give up for me. Now that I see you, believe me. And you're willing to be absolutely obedient. Look over there in the bush. There's a ram there. Go get it. And that's your sacrifice. Well, there are lessons there, not just for Abraham. There are lessons there for you and for me as well. And let me recount them quickly. The first lesson is that when God sees we have a problem in our characters, as he saw with Abraham and his faith, God keeps working on it until we overcome and we become strong in the area where we've been weak. When God loves us, he doesn't just let us go. He keeps testing us and testing us. And if you don't pass it the first time, you know what he'll do? He'll bring it right on back. And you don't pass it that time, he'll give you another chance. It's like, like what happened to me at the university when I was getting my terminal degree. I had to pass a test in Spanish, I had to read Spanish, and I had to read German. 
Spanish was kind of easy because I'd grown up in L.A. around that culture. But German might as well have been talking Chinese. Had to learn to read the scholars in German. And the way they had it is, if you didn't pass the test the first time, they give it to you the second time. And give it to you the third time, and the fourth time, and the fifth time. Well, I'm not going to tell you how many times I took it, but I took it more than once. <laughs> but I finally passed. Finally passed what I could read the German, and I had to spend seven weeks in Austria getting ready for it. But I did. And when I came back, I passed the test, and I could understand at last. And that's the way God does you and me. He keeps giving it to us. And, give it, and if, you, if you let him down, he gives you the test on appetite, and you keep eating too much, and keep eating. He, he'll, he'll keep putting it all on the table. Hey, fill up the Thanksgiving table. See what you're going to do. <laughs> and if you don't pass it on Thanksgiving, you bring it back Christmas. <laughs> See what you're going to do. And if you don't do it right then, he'll bring it New Year's until you learn to control your appetite. And if you keep on, keep on, keep on failing, you know what God will do? He'll stop bothering with you and let you be a glutton and die. Possibly. Because you have disarranged your organs and you have, you have plundered your pancreas and liver and all the rest of your system acid reflex or whatever. God will do it. And he brings us to that test again and again, whatever it may be. And with God, it's better to pass the test the first time because the second time with God, it gets harder. With my German, I got easier every time because I was learning as I went. But with God, it gets harder. And Abraham had lied and Abraham had laughed and now God gave him the hardest test that could have been given. The second thing that we learn is that true faith sometimes demands illogical actions. Abraham's killing his son just wasn't logical. But faith often demands the illogical and the unreasonable. Real faith takes you out of your comfort zone. Real faith calls you to do things your family and your friends don't understand and might not approve. It might not seem logical to return your tithe when you don't know how you pay your rent. Do you hear me, church? Real faith is illogical. Real faith doesn't make sense to ordinary reasoning. It might not seem logical to lose your job because you refuse to work on Sabbath. It might not seem logical to enroll your child in a Christian school when the public schools are free. Might not seem logical. It might not seem logical to live in hope of the second coming of Christ when we've been preaching it for 2,000 years and we're getting old and gray and slower in our steps, it might not seem logical to believe, but faith demands that we believe and that believing we act upon it. And if God said it, we trust it. And if God said it, we must do it. It wasn't logical. For Israel's army to march around Jericho instead of fighting, it wasn't logical for the lepers to run to the priests to be uh, pronounced clean when they hadn't even been healed yet. It wasn't logical for the few loaves and fish to feed 5,000 besides men and women. But faith in the hands of Jesus accomplishes mightily and the illogical becomes possible in the hand and bosom of faith. And finally, we want to remember that Abraham's experience is, most of all, a type of the salvation relationship of God the Father and God the Son. Abraham represents the Father. Isaac represents the son. Abraham 
is God who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Isaac is Jesus who was willing to do the father's bidding. And I like the way one dear sister in this church says it every time we have prayer meeting when she testifies. And you may know who she is, but her words are, I'm glad that God, that they didn't have to wrestle Jesus to put him on the cross. They didn't have to wrestle him down. He willingly gave his life. He laid upon the altar. Isaac's was a life of privilege. His father was rich. And once Ishmael was expelled, Isaac had free reign, free realm, free roaming. He was freewheeling. Isaac was the boy. He was the man, so to speak. But Jesus did not have a happy experience. Even though he had expelled Ishmael, or Satan as it were, from heaven. He dogged him all of his life. Ishmael left and he was out of sight. But even though Lucifer was expelled, he hounded Jesus when he came to this world every step of his life. He even suggested, Ellen White says, he even suggested to him in the wilderness of temptation, listen to this, he even told Jesus, you don't have to go through all this. You don't have to die like that. Yeah, I, I understand the prophecy. I know all about the sacrifices. I know all about the lambs. I know all about the blood. I know all about the Passover. You're going to die, but you don't have to die. Listen to this. Just as I saved Abraham from killing Isaac, I will save you from dying on the cross. Now, you know, the devil's a fool. He thinks Jesus is going to believe that he saved Abraham from killing Isaac when it was Christ himself. He was talking to the deliverer, trying to deceive him. And all of his life, he was on his heels. Whereas Isaac didn't know what was going to happen as he went up to the mountain, Jesus knew every step of the way that his life would end upon the cross. Whereas Isaac's hands and feet were bound and he could not escape, Jesus' hands and feet were nailed, but he could have escaped. He could have called 10,000 angels. And whereas Isaac did not feel the blow of death, Jesus felt those blows for you and me. And whereas Isaac escaped and lived to be Genesis 35, 28 says, lived to be 180 years old. <laughs> he lived another 160 years. Jesus died the same day he was placed upon the cross. And within three hours, he was dead. They went to break his legs to induce death because the Sabbath was coming. But he was already dead. And all of that for you and for me. And I conclude by saying, you and I ought to be ashamed. The final moral is that when we consider what God has done for us, what Jesus did in following the Father's will, we should be ashamed of ourselves. We should be ashamed of the wrong priorities that we set in the light of Calvary. We should be ashamed of how we sometimes spend our money. We should be ashamed of how we gossip and talk about each other. We should be ashamed that we don't pass out tracts and give Bible studies. We should be ashamed that our neighbors don't know about the God, the Christ that we know. We should be ashamed to bring him such feeble offerings. We should be ashamed that we are not willing to serve him in the church. We should be ashamed that we have so little time for God when he has given us everything that he has. His only begotten son. And his son has given us his life. But while we should be ashamed, thank God we can also be thankful. We can be thankful that he's given us this Thanksgiving season. And we can be thankful that we still have time to get it right. And I don't know what your problem is. 
But I know what mine are, and I don't say is. Is is singular, are is plural. I repeat, I know what mine are. And I'm asking God to help me pass my tests. And I don't know what your tests may be, but if you know, and if you don't know, ask and God will show you. But if you already know, and if you don't know and you want him to show you, and you want to say, Lord, help me to pass the test so that I can live and if necessary die in the sanctity of your will, would you stand right where you are and say, yes, that's my prayer. And Lord, give me help to pass the test whenever it comes. May I be ready. May I be successful. When I go to my Gethsemane, when I go to my Mount Moriah, Lord, help me. Whether it's with my children, my wife, my job, my bank, my health, my friends, whatever it is, Lord. Father in heaven, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he was willing Thank you that he went all the way. And today, at this Thanksgiving season, we are grateful for all you've done. We're just grateful to be alive. We're just grateful to be here. But most of all, we thank you for Jesus. And we pray that our thanks might result in deeper reverence, in deeper appreciation, and in deeper fidelity and service in his name and for his sake and while you're standing we never close this service without opening the doors of the church and if there's a man a woman a boy a girl here who feels the pull of the holy spirit and you're touched by the great love of jesus and you want to say i'd like to belong to a church that believes in jesus like that some people think the seventh day adventists are all about the commandments but oh no we don't believe the commandments save us. We believe we keep the commandments because Jesus has died for us. He took the knife. He bore our stripes. Our sufferings and iniquities were placed upon him. He is the sacrificial lamb. And if you love him enough to serve him to keep all ten of his commandments, you can become a Seventh-day Adventist today. If you're studying and on your way or you used to be and you've gone out, whatever your circumstance, if you want to renew your walk, just raise your hand right where you are. We have Bible workers that will take your information and pray with you. God bless you. We see you, sir. God bless you, little lady. Who else? You may raise your hand. Oh, Father, may your Holy Spirit implant your word in our hearts. May we leave this place grateful, but inspired. Grateful and thankful, but determined that we will keep our hand in Jesus' hand. That we will not judge ourselves by ourselves. And, and let me pause in my prayer. Church, that's our problem. We look at others and we say, well, I'm doing as well as he and she. No, 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 no. We must judge ourselves by the sacrifice of Calvary. Oh, Father, give us that determination. Take us safely now, and may your word be a seed in good soil. We ask in Jesus' name, let all the people say, Amen. Shall we be seated?